It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 62 of Sports Day Plus. In mere seconds, I am spending the full hour with the hilarious Steve Byrne ahead of his shows at Creek in the Cave tomorrow and Saturday night. Discussing everything from moving his family out of the cesspool that is California to some of our favorite films, including excellent films he directed in the past several years, to eating humble pie served up by some legendary comedians earlier in his career. Plus, he gives some thoughts on his beloved Pittsburgh Steelers. I am your host, Trey Elling. You can give me a follow on Twitter at Courtesy Wave and do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. Steve Byrne is a longtime comedian, actor, and director who will be honing that stand-up craft here in Austin this weekend at the Creek in the Cave. Two shows tomorrow, two shows Saturday, 7 and 9 o'clock each night. You can go to creekincave.com for info and more tickets. Let me tell you, he is one of the stone-cold killers out there in terms of stand-up comedians. Well worth the price of admission. Steve, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thank you, Trey. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So I just found out before we hit record that you were in Austin shortly after things started to open up from the pandemic a few years ago, playing at Vulcan Gas Company back then. You're going to be coming back to Creek in the Cave now. Austin, in that time, has uh, somehow turned into one of the stand-up hotspots in the country. Then again, you also moved to what is now considered a stand-up hotspot in Nashville as well. Um, yeah. For somebody who has been performing stand-up for as long as you have, you've been through Austin time and time again, does it surprise you at all to uh, to know that Austin is this sort of stand-up mecca now? Look, it is surprising. I think it's it's always been a, a market associated with music. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't think Austin would be on the map for comedy at all because, you know, it's always been New York, comedy selling in the other clubs, and then it's L.A., comedy store in the other clubs, uh, and improv, I should say. But to know that Austin has blossomed into this scene, you know, it, it literally just go, boils down to one name, and that's Joe Rogan. You know, you get the biggest podcast in the world, and he wants to settle roots there. And then he brings, you know a collection of all these great comics that are willing to like roll the dice on themselves out of Los Angeles, out of the comedy store. I mean, half the comedy store left to go through. So like the employees. So it's um to see that it it's, I think really at the end of the day, it's just an acknowledgement of like the drawing power and the significance and gravity that Joe Rogan has not only in the podcast world, but absolutely and certainly in the comedy world. I think I think, you know, Dave Chappelle's trying to do that in Yellow Springs, Ohio, but I, I, I just don't think, I think that's going to be a destination where comics go and do sets, but like people have moved to Austin. That's, that's a huge difference. And so, you know, I'm not knocking Chappelle or anything. I'm, I'm just saying that, you know, there's comics that are trying to set up these camps now and you're seeing what Rogan has done and accomplished. It's, it really is. I, I've never seen it in the comedy world at all. It's it's pretty wild. Is there somebody that qualifies as that person in Nashville? Because I feel like there have been people who established their roots in Nashville over the years. You're there now, obviously. I'm guessing Zanies yeah. is where you go to work out a lot of material, but you're to the point where you're probably working things out on stage when you're traveling across the country as well. Was there that initiator on the Nashville side of things? I think... Um... Look, I mean, there, there's such a it's like there's Rogan, then there's like everybody else. Right. And there's like five notches below because what he's done and accomplished. I mean, he's built his own club. 
and that club's been massively successful. And through the influx of all the comedians coming for the opportunity and looking for the outreach that Rogan has, you know, they're hoping to get on that podcast. They're hoping to body up with him. They're hoping to be on Kill Tony. They're hoping to do all these things, right? That are that are based out of out of Austin. So, I think there's like Austin, then there's like everybody else, right? Uh, I think it goes. It's still New York. It's still LA, and now Austin on the map, and then it's everybody else after that. Um, I think Nashville will never be the scene that any of those things are. I think Nashville's uh, just a great place to raise a family. That's why I moved here, right? Nobody's like moving here for comedy. Move, people are moving here for a better quality of life. So if, if I were to say, why are people here? It's like, for me, it's Nate. See, like Nate was very instrumental. And in, I remember going out to lunch with him in Philadelphia. We're both there years ago, both doing comedy clubs and, He's doing theaters and arenas now, and I'm still in comedy clubs, so that tells you something. But Nate was very, very cool about um, about like telling me about Nashville and putting the seed in my head. Then pandemic hits. My wife and I never loved L.A. We always liked L.A., but then I was like, well, let, let's check out Nashville. And that's exactly what we did. And within months of pandemic hitting, we we moved here and have never looked back and, and love it. But uh but it is a good scene for sure. I mean, new talent showcases. You're going to go see Nate. You'll see Theo Vaughn. You'll Dusty Slay. You'll see me. Uh, Angela Johnson just moved here. Kathleen Madigan lives here. So it's a good core of comics. But I wouldn't say by any means we're all bowling on the weekends together, you know. Whereas like in Austin, like everybody's at the mothership because all those guys are a lot younger. <laughs> They're single. They don't have families. So it's just a different confluence of personalities. Yeah, that makes sense. By the same token, though, I heard you on the Drinking Bros podcast back in 2019, and you were talking about moving to Nashville then. And a big part of the reason is you have two kids. What are your kids' ages now? Uh, 11 and 8. Okay, I've got a 9 and 7-year-old, so we're on a very similar oh. timeline in terms of uh, how yeah, yeah. Uh, beholden we are to these little humans, you know? That's right, yes. Yeah, but, uh, yeah that, that's that's really why I did it. I mean, Los Angeles, the the I, I can't... <laughs> begin to describe just how it's almost like you're in another I, I don't know it's like you're not living in this country almost there there's just like parents don't hang out like they do like like we open our doors here and the kids just go outside and play like yeah. in LA it's like regimented you got to set up a play date and you, you know no kids really play in the neighborhood it's it's weird it's just weird the schools are out of control and just the traffic's horrendous I used to when I when I did my movie, the opening act, not to bring that up, but it, it, it's just example L.A. I ha I lived in Pasadena. I had to go out to um to Venice to go edit this thing, and for I think about four or five months, I would I would have to travel two hours to get there and two hours to come back, and sometimes it'd be two and a half. I mean that's that's four five hours sometimes just in the car to get to an edit bay. And I, I, after doing that for like four or five months, I wanted to kill myself. And I was like, I think that was a big reason why, why I was like, I gotta get the f out of here. Yeah. You know, I, I feel you on that too, because we had our, uh, our first when we were living in Chicago and we were in Chicago proper at the time. And it's like, there's no way in hell we want to raise oh, kids God. in the city proper. And this was back in 2014, 2015, there's no way yeah. in hell we want to raise our kids in Chicago proper. And if we move to the suburbs, it's like, what's the point of living in Chicago at that point? Because how often are you going to be making it back into the city 
to go along with the brutal winters as well. So you try and find some place that is comparable in terms of the cool points, but is much lower on that BS, I guess. Now that you're someplace where you do feel more comfortable with your kids playing outside, what do you think the biggest challenge is with raising kids in 2024? Because there are a couple of different directions we could go here. <laughs> that is a, that, that you're right. You could go a million different ways. I think, I'll be honest with you, I think one of the biggest reasons why we moved out of uh, California, Los Angeles was, was, you know, we're pretty, my wife and I are pretty straight down the middle. I think when people watch my comedy, they're going to hear something that offends them and they go, Oh, he's, he's, he's conservative. And then they're going to hear something else and go, Oh, he's, he's a socialist. It's like, you're only hearing what you want to remember. Right. But for us, we're pretty centrist and we're, we sway one way on this one way on that, you know, um, but boy, the identity politics in Los Angeles were driving us both crazy. And having kids in school at the time, especially with all like the the hammering of sexuality and trans and all this other stuff, it's just like, look, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tell my my kids like Michael Jackson, right? I'm not gonna tell my kids like, you know, like what Michael did and why people don't really like Michael Jackson or why he comes with like, you know, an asterisk. It's like because they're too young, like they're too young to understand that. So, so it's like every time they ask for Michael Jackson, I'm like, okay, they're like, Dad, don't you like Michael? I'm like, I like Michael Jackson, but you know, there's, what what's wrong? Well, I'll tell you when you get older, right? So I think it's like it's the same thing with that stuff. And so California, that's an example of like why we want to get out of there. He is stand-up comedian Steve Byrne, headlining at Creek in the Cave tomorrow and Saturday night, 7 o'clock and 9 o'clock each night. Go to creekandcave.com to get tickets. Coming up more with Steve as he joins me for the full hour, continuing on the other side. On 1027 ESPN. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Back with stand-up comedian Steve Byrne. He is here in town this weekend, headlining at Creek in the Caves, Friday and Saturday night, 7 and 9 p.m. shows each night. And he is much more than just a stand-up, although that's my favorite version of him. He's also a great filmmaker, too, by the way. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit. Did a great documentary on the deceased Amazing Jonathan and another film that is all about his start in stand-up called The Opening Act. It came out in 2020, unfortunately, right when COVID was hitting, but it is also a really good film. Check them out at Creek in the Cave. Go to creekandcave.com for both shows, either night. Still tickets remaining for all four. Steve, we were just talking about you moving your family from California to Nashville because of how wacko things were getting in California even before the COVID pandemic, but certainly after that too. You wanted to add one more thing? My wife's a fifth grade teacher uh, prior to uh, meeting me. And she's like, I was like, when do they do like sex ed? She's like sixth grade. I'm like, yeah, that's probably a good time to do it. So do it then. But my daughter at the time was, you know, third grade or something like that. It's, this is bananas. Like, uh, I don't know. Another example, of like not living in this country. It's like, I want to get out of here. So, so that's to answer your question. I'm trying to be as politically correct, I guess, as I can, but that <laughs> well, I feel like also like not only <laughs> is that a big part of the challenge, but then you have the whole technology and dietary things to go along with too. like you take your kids someplace in public at a restaurant. They have the kids menu and then they have the human food menu because the kids menu always consists of quesadillas, chicken fingers. There's yes. maybe like a cheese or pepperoni pizza and 
it's just straight up garbage that the kids are yep. being given options with versus forcing them to eat something off of the uh, the adult menu, if you will. That's still good food. It just doesn't cater to their, their most basic sensibilities with regards to what they want to eat. Something that's deep fried and maybe has a bunch of sugar in it, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the public schools, too, like in California. Um, by the way, I am a comedian. <laughs> this is that we've gone down a weird tangent. But, but the, like the public schools, if you are... If you're sending your kids to public school, which I think my wife and I did, planning that our daughter hits junior high school, my son hits junior high school, okay, we're going to have to pay to get them a private school because it's like, okay. And then all of a sudden, the grading of the public schools dips down. It was one out of the, the school system we were at was a two out of 10, the public school system, once you get to sixth grade. So we're like, okay, we got to send her to private school. And then to, to send her to private school, you don't just send her to private school. It's like, oh, you got to interview. You've got to um, like send a letter. You got to pay for it. And and these private schools are as much as a, um, a college tuition. Like when I was in college, like Kent State, it was as much as that, if not more, depending on the ones you want to go to. So you have to hope you get in through the lottery. Then you'll hope you get passed. Then you get them in. That's just the beginning. Then there's all these fundraisers that you have to do for the kids and they're just constantly gouging these parents. They don't, you know, and so the public school, even we went, no school, no, no school buses in California. You have to, you have to drive your kids to school. So it's like, you're the fifth largest economy. You brag about all this stuff. And then I, I moved to Nashville and now my daughter and son are in a school system that's ranked nine out of 10 public school system. These kids go to school with, um, you know, Tennessee Titans kids and country music stars kids. So I think, again, that's, that's something that you don't really think about at the time, but all these parents are living in a township and pooling their resources to make the public school as great and as efficient as possible. And I think that's what should be happening. But in LA, it's like, no, f*** it. I'm, I'm well off. We all are in the film or TV industry. So we're going to pull our money and pull it out of the public schools and send our kids to a private school and pay for it. And the public schools can go themselves. I mean, that's really what it is. Uh, so another example, like I could go down the rabbit and the, and the guys taking shit in the middle of the street. I mean, you know, I had a bit in one of my specials about homeless guy hating on my wife while he's taking shit. It's like, it's like, this is a crazy, crazy place. I think the get out of here. Wait a second. What is the line that is being given by somebody who is dropping a number two as they're trying to hit on your wife? He's squatting in the middle of the sidewalk on Ninth and Hope, where we lived. And he looks at my wife and he goes, well, hello, beautiful. And my wife's like, what the f*** is going on? Like, <laughs> we're going to go to eat lunch. And then we go to eat lunch. And I can't stop laughing at lunch. And she is definitely not eating. And I'm wolfing down my brain. She's like, I've lost my appetite. And then we go, we're walking back home uh, to go home. And, and she's like, Let, let's go around this block in case he's here. I'm like, oh, we're walking straight down this block. <laughs> and then he's, then he's getting arrested with, and we discover he's got no pants, but he's yelling at the cops like, you mother, you don't know the, and then he sees my wife again. He sees her again. He looks at her and goes, well, hello again. And she's like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> so that was our homeless taking a in the middle of but that again the homelessness in california is real like we my good friend peter billingsley from a christmas story yeah he used to live off the gower exit off the 101 now when you get off the gower exit that takes you up into the hills 
And that's where like throw a rock, you're you're gonna you're gonna hit a celebrity's house, right? So every time I'd go off that exit, it was it was like the gateway to the hills. Um and, and to the Hollywood sign for that matter, too. You could hike up to the Hollywood sign off that exit. So it's a very popular area. Um and I remember when I was going just before I moved, I was like, oh, I'm gonna go hike the Hollywood sign one last time. And we, we I get off the exit. And there's all these tents, not only tents, they had a wash station and they had a latrine. Any other city would be like, all right, we got to clean this up. There's rich people here. The rich people don't want this eyesore. They don't want to be around it. But the city was saying, make yourself comfortable. Take a right there, not on the sidewalk, right on the sidewalk in this porta potty. Off of off, like Hollywood and La Cienega, there's like this six way kind of intersection. And they have a telephone pole. And there was a guy that hacked into the light post and had literally built a shed <laughs> on there. And a homeless guy, there was all these tents, but he had running electricity. And he was living in a shed that he built on the, like, that. that's like living in Times Square. That, that's by the Beverly Center. That's how crazy California is. And everybody was like putting up with it. And I was like, this is not normal. I got to get the hell out of here. So this is the last thing I'll say. When we moved to this area, there's this, um, in the middle of the town square of Franklin, there's a uh, like a Confederate statue, right? Uh, some military guy from the Confederacy. And at the time, like all the BLM stuff was happening. And I told my real estate agent, I go, I go, you know, I'm coming from Los Angeles. We're gonna have to tear that statue down. She goes, you try to pull that statue down. You're gonna have 35 shotguns coming in on you at one point. And I was like, I forgot everybody's packing heat. She's like, I'm packing heat. I'm like, what? And she pulls out a purse. She got a gun. I was like, Jesus, like this place is, I mean, there's like this pendulum, like, you know, societal norms, but you know, I, I I guess I'll take it. I'll take that over like all the other shit that's going on in California. Yeah, it is a little bit of a culture shock. I'm glad you mentioned your friend Peter because you guys did a fantastic job in the uh, second season of his uh, of his podcast, The Cinematic Christmas Journey. Uh, you were the co-host all throughout season two. I don't know if you're going to be back for season three, but you guys are basically just breaking down Christmas movies. You're talking to with people who were a part of those Christmas movies, actually planes, trains, and automobiles was a part of the conversation, technically a Thanksgiving mm -hmm. movie. And I love how season two ended with Die Hard, which you talked to the cinematographer from Die Hard. And at the end of that conversation, I, look, I've always been a, a Die Hard as a Christmas movie guy. Mm -hmm. I've never had it put as succinctly to me as to why it is a Christmas movie versus how Peter put it at the end. I had already ta always taken it at, at surface value. It's like, look, this is a Christmas party. If the Christmas party's not happening, the movie's not happening. It's it's a completely sure, different yeah. movie. But the, I mean, he took it to like two and three levels deep to explain why it is in fact a Christmas movie to the degree that the cinematographer for Die Hard, who has this extensive list of credits, was like, you know what? You're right. It is a Christmas movie. Yeah, Jan de Bont, who I think most people know him from directing Speed and Twister and a ton of films, but he was the DP on that one. Um, but to your point, you're absolutely right. I mean, th that was not a surface type, you know, um, mental floss podcast. That was a deep dive. Yeah. And if anybody can understand the DNA of what a, what makes a great Christmas film, it's Peter Billingsley. I mean, he's he's been in elf he's been you know the face of christmas story he did four christmases 
So if anybody knows the ingredients to a great Christmas story, it is absolutely Peter. But he took that same attention and care to to the um, to the podcast. And I mean, I cannot tell people how much research we did on those films. Uh, but we we did the research on the films, A, because we were fans of the film and the genre. But also we wanted to make sure we were respectful to every guest we had. I mean, we had some heavy hitters. Paul Hirsch, whose book I just finished over there, he edited Star Wars. Wow. Um, the original Star Wars. He edited that and then he edits Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And he edits planes, trains, and automobiles. So to your point, when somebody like that comes in, you're not like, so how was the flight? You know, you want to be like really prepared. And Peter was such a great partner, I, I would say leader on this in terms of like making sure we were on point. We knew our stuff. We had it together. And that's why the the podcast was as successful as it was during the holiday season. And we just finished doing an adventure series for Spotify. So we're doing like Raiders and all these kind of fun adventure films. And we'll see if we get to do another Christmas uh, run too. I'm, I'm not sure how many great Christmas films there are left to be mine. I'm sure there will be, you know, at least another season or two, but, but he's, he's just a great dude, a really, really great guy, not only to work with, but to, uh, to kick a few back with every now and then he moved to Idaho actually. Um, from California. So he's in Boise. Good for him. Boise is one of those Nashville, Austin, Denver. Can't really put Portland on that list anymore, but one of those types of places now. I did want to ask one more thing about one of the movies you guys talked about this last season, season two of this podcast, having to do with one of my all-time favorite comedies and clearly the best Thanksgiving-themed movie of all time. We will do that on the other side, though. He is the hilarious Steve Byrne, headlining at Creek in the Cave this weekend. Two shows Friday, two shows Saturday. Go to creekandcave.com to grab tickets. Coming up, I continue an hour-long conversation with Steve Byrne on the other side. On 1027 ESPN. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellen. Back with the hilarious Steve Byrne. He is headlining at Creek in the Cave this weekend. Two shows Friday, two shows Saturday. Those are 7 and 9 p.m. Go to creekandcave.com to grab tickets. See, we're just talking about the podcast that you do with Peter Billingsley, A Cinematic Christmas Journey, where you talk about different holiday-themed movies. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is one of the all-time underrated comedies holiday or not, is there something that you learned about the making of that film from having that conversation? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so many things to glean from any one of these, you know. Um, But the thing I found fascinating was that John Hughes, who, I mean, he's John Hughes. He doesn't need any help. He writes an ending. The whole, you know, it doesn't matter how a film begins. Obviously, you need the setup to work, right? But the ending is the payoff. And people remember the ending. That's that's why films live in the pantheon of great films. Um, and his ending for Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was not working. People were laughing at it. Because what happened is Martin goes and has a conversation with Dell, And it, it, he's kind of tearing into him, but then realizes, okay, he's got no place to go. So this conversation happens. Dell kind of breaks down. Dell's like getting emotional and... People are laughing at John Candy in the test screenings. Those guys are too busy. You can't reshoot an ending. John Hughes has literally weeks, weeks to figure this out before it's to be released. So he's, I mean, he's, he's genuinely, and him, Paul Hirsch, the editors, they're just sitting there and they're going, what the hell do we do? And it's like, well, Steve Martin's going to figure it out. Whoever said it in the edit bay. So they took 
um, edits before they're filming. Okay, you're setting the camera up, and Steve Martin's just kind of sitting there. They're like, "All right, Steve, we're ready." And you, okay, here we go. So while he's daydreaming, just a few seconds before that, they're like, "All right, take that snippet of him daydreaming." And then take a snippet of him doing this. And then he's making the crew laugh, right? Before the take, he's making the crew laugh. And he's joking. He's like, ah, Steve, ready? Okay. They took that part where he's laughing to himself after a joke he made. And they're taking it. And all these little pieces, they now created a montage where Steve Martin is backtracking and almost like Kaiser Sozi putting it together. Oh, he said this. Oh, he said that. He made me laugh there. Oh, my God. Holy His wife's dead. And then he goes to the train station and says, come on, that's it. There's no dialogue. There's nothing. But Steve Martin, now the audience understand, they piece it together along with him. Now you solve the mystery that Del Griffith's wife is dead and he has nobody else. And that's why he's so forthcoming, so outgoing, and so wants to be his friend. Because he has nobody else. When's the last time you're home? Well, I've been home in years. Like, take that. Put that in there, right? So all these breadcrumbs... And you think John Hughes, wow, he, he wrote an ending that you would think worked. It's one of the most impactful endings to a film. And that's why, that's why it's so resonant. That to me was very, very shocking to hear that such a genius like John Hughes, even in the edit bay, needed to fix something and tweak something. You know, I'm glad that you and I have a chance to talk because in doing prep, I came across a couple of movies of yours that I didn't realize that you had uh, directed. One is Always Amazing a documentary on the amazing Jonathan rest in peace. And the other is the opening act, which is a stand-up comedy film based on your early experiences as a stand-up. And I feel like you and John Hughes have a similar quality with your films based on the fact that they're not only funny, but there's also a genuine heartfelt nature to them as well. And that's not to say that you're aiming oh, to make you. a John Hughes film whenever you do those sorts of things, of course, but it yeah. comes across as that. So congratulations on those things. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's, uh, first off, like the Jonathan Doc, which is on YouTube for free. You can check it out. It's always amazing. For those that know Jonathan, Jonathan was an incredibly talented comedian magician, more so comedian than magician, but really raw, really raw, really low. He's not there to be your friend. He is going to with you. And he passed. He, he knew he had an expiration date, but uh, he was doing one last tour. And I thought, wow, what a great entry into a doc. But the doc at the end of the day, to, to your point, was really about a relationship between this magician and this kid he took under his wing named Joel Osborne, who wanted to be a stand-up. And this relationship of two people on paper that shouldn't be friends, but somehow this incredible bond formed between these two guys. And Jonathan became a father figure for him. And Joel essentially was a caretaker for a drug addict. I mean, you got an 18-year-old kid moving from Australia to Las Vegas in charge of a guy who's like till seven in the morning doing coke and hooking up with hookers and all this stuff. And, and an 18-year-old kid who doesn't drink, it's like he's babysitting him. And Jonathan says, if it wasn't for him, I'd be dead. Like it's, it's, it's a really crazy film. So, so that doc happened. We actually wrote a script based on it. And that'll be the next one I do after this next one, this next one I'm doing is uh, about Caltech's basketball program because I did the opening act and I was like, if I'm going to do this, keep it grounded, make it realistic um, and pay credence and homage to literally what is happening, you know, at somebody's career. It is the most difficult, arduous part of any occupation, right? You're taking lumps. So I took all those lessons a young comic learns the first time on the road and crammed it into one weekend. So Jimmy O'Yang, who plays 
like a, a younger version of me is just getting hammered and hammered and hammered. And the light at the end of the tunnel is just getting that one slight win at the end, give you enough fuel to make it to the next weekend and then learning upon all those lessons. So, so that's the core of the opening act and uh, that you can rent. It's, it's like two bucks on iTunes or Amazon and highly rated. And again, you know, it comes out at a time when pandemic hits. It's like, you know, the fortunate thing is you get to make a film. The unfortunate thing is there's a global pandemic and you know, the two things I make, you know, no film premiere, no big night out, you know, just like video on demand. That was maddening to me yeah. to learn when it came out. When I saw 2020, I'm like, this is why I never heard about this movie. I hate that because I am a huge fan of stand up and I would have immediately, but I don't even watch a ton of movies in the theater at this point. That's the sort of movie that I wouldn't would have gone to seen in the theater. And you're obviously well respected and stand up and you need to look no further than the caliber of comics who were appearing uh, in that film, everybody from Bill Burr to Neil Brennan to Felipe Esparza, Cedric the Entertainer as well. Jimmy gives a phenomenal performance too. I hear comedians talk about from time to time early in their stand-up careers, you're toiling, you're trying to figure out what works, and it's really hard because it is a, a, a thankless gig in a lot of ways. But a lot of times comics will talk about that one bigger name who gives them, maybe it's a compliment or something, or maybe just an ego boost that really helps to push them along to further fuel that desire to make it as a stand-up. Is there sure. someone like that for you in your stand-up career? Well, I, I, that's kind of two-part. For me, it was always like the elder statesman at the Comedy Cellar when I passed there. It was Colin Quinn, it was Greg Giraldo, mm. Rich Ross, Keith Robinson, uh, Patrice O'Neill. Um, all, all, all those guys were like, they they put you through the ringer. I mean, they 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 genuinely put you through the ringer, and it's because of those experiences you 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 built up this tough skin. I'll never forget. I I was twenty three. I passed at the Comedy Cellar. Was twenty two at the time. I didn't even know what the Comedy Cellar was. I had no idea. I didn't know it was like the spot. Every comic wants to get in there. You audition. You're part of the club. It's like Jesus. It hit me afterwards. Right. And, and, and when it hit me, maybe like a month later, because I'm 22 and, and on a nightly basis, Robin Williams is coming in, Seinfeld's coming in, Ray Romano's coming in, like everybody's coming in, Chappelle, Rock, like they all come there to work on stuff. They came there, if you're a significant comedian, to work on your stuff. You're hosting SNL. You come to work on stuff at the cellar. It's like, that's how much it meant to the comedy world. So it hits me. I'm like, holy shit, I'm in over my head. Like, I better perform. And right when that happens, I remember going downstairs. It's like a Monday night. There's maybe 25 people in there at like 11 o'clock at night. So I, I get up to do my set. <laughs> I'll never forget this. The front row is empty. Okay. Patrice walks in, pulls the chairs out and goes, come on, come on, come on, come on. And one by one, Patrice sits down. Norton sits down. Voss sits down. Keith Robinson sits down. And I think it was like, you know, one other comic. They're all in the front row. I am absolutely sweating bullets. I'm doing my act, not only for one, all of them, all of them. And they're all sitting there and not one of them is laughing. And I am like cranking it up to 10. I'm full on energy. The audience is picking up like this is uncomfortable. I am dying. So I had this closing bit that they all knew that kind of made fun of me about Bruce Lee having sex. And I'm like, Bruce Lee playing with the nipple and all this stuff. And <laughs> as I'm setting it up, perfect time, of course, Patrice looks at them 
snaps his finger and goes, let's go. They all slowly draw their chairs out like they're synchronized, right? And walk out single file as I'm doing my closing bit. <laughs> I It's like somebody pulled the spine out of my back and I'm like, ah, just, I kind of, I plowed through it, but man, that's one of the worst bombs I ever had in my life. But it was one of those things where I walk upstairs to the to the olive tree thing, and I'm like, I'm gonna get my shit and get the fuck out of here. <laughs> so I go upstairs, and then Patrice just slow claps me, and then they all kind of slow clap me. I'm like, you mother. <laughs> and it was like one of those things where it's like it hurt so bad, but it was one of those things where it's like, all right, you're part of the club. Welcome to the club, kid. I was like, it was really cool at the end of the day, you know. But I I didn't run out the side door. I went back upstairs. I was like, all right, I'm gonna face this and. You know, they're all going to ignore me and they did for a sec, but Patrice gave me that slow clap. And it was one of those things where I never forgot that. It was pretty cool. God, between that and the, uh, the SNL, uh, demo tape story that, uh, I know you told on podcast before, I'm not going to ask for it here. I mean, I can understand how that can really thicken your skin and basically make you immune to just about anything you deal with. Certainly with a crowd that isn't responsive or maybe the occasional heck- heckler. I mean, at that point, that's child's play for you. Well, I mean, look, that 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 still did hurt the 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 roast SNL tape. Bill Burr, who, you know, <laughs> we kind of came to New York at the same time. <laughs> I did his podcast uh, when, when the film was coming out and he was in the film, as you know, he yeah. uh, he said to this day, it's one of the one of the if not meanest things he's ever seen in stand up comedy. And it's all uh, it's all because of Bobby Kelly, who is a great friend. But um, what an Oh, man, he is Steve Byrne headlining at Creek in the Cave this weekend. What you just heard is what you can expect on stage at Creek in the Cave. Two shows tomorrow, two shows Saturday, 7 and 9 p.m. each night. Go to creekandcave.com for info and tickets. Coming up, one more segment with Steve where we delve into his beloved Pittsburgh Steelers on the other side. On 1027 ESPN. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Back for one final segment with the hilarious Steve Byrne ahead of his headlining shows at Creek in the Cave this weekend. Two shows tomorrow, two shows on Saturday, 7 and 9 each night. Go to creekandcave.com to snag the tickets that remain. First, though, I do need to let you know about a friend of mine. His name is Steve, and he is the guy behind Pest Wranglers. That's right, Pest Wranglers, Pest Wranglers, Pest Wranglers. Since 2006, they have been serving Central Texas, taking care of pest problems in and around homes and places of business, and they've done so with a motto, effective, reliable, affordable. A secondary motto is, we love you, the customer. One of the reasons why I love Steve is because he loves people. He values relationships. He makes to make sure to treat his employees great. In return, they treat you, the customer, great. They are so confident in their customer service that they don't need to sign you up to a contract. If you're unhappy with anything, you can cancel right then and there, but they believe that you will love them enough to have them back out whenever you do have those pest control needs. That's why they have countless five-star ratings and reviews on Google, Yelp, and elsewhere. They offer pests, mosquito, and rodent control and exclusion, inspections for residential and commercial properties, and pool service in Round Rock and Pflugerville. 
Somerville. For more info or to request a quote, that's a free quote, by the way, visit PestWranglers.com. That's PestWranglers.com. Or give them a call, 512-670-7808. That's 670-7808. Pest Wranglers, effective, reliable, and affordable. Back now with one final segment with comedian Steve Byrne. As I just told you, he is headlining at Creek in the Cave this weekend. There are so many good comics coming through town pretty much every weekend now. Austin is a stand-up mecca, in my opinion. Steve is one of the funniest people around. This would be well worth it for you to check him out at Creek in the Cave. Go to creekandcave.com to grab tickets. Two shows Friday, two shows on Saturday. Last thing here now, Steve, because people can see the Pirates hat on your head. They can see the Lemieux jersey in the background. Yes. You are you are a Pittsburgh guy. That means you're a big-time Pittsburgh sports fan. Where are you with Mike Tomlin right now? Because there is a big debate within the Pittsburgh community. One of my best friends is a huge Steelers fan. He's like, I just don't know anymore. He gets us to a certain point, but we're not able to get over that hump, and we're not making any postseason noise. So where are you with Mike Tomlin right now with the Steelers? Look, to me, it's almost like his hands are kind of tied behind his back, right? He comes in, he wins with um, Cowers' regime, with Cowers' guys. And essentially, I mean, maybe maybe people don't want to hear this, but like a Roethlisberger on the decline, right? But you're not going to get rid of Beth Roethlisberger. You're you're tied to him. So he has that. And now you roll the dice. You got Kenny Pickett, and he didn't light it up. I mean, Roethlisberger came in as a young kid and went 13-0. and 0. Kenny Pickett, who is uh, not Ben Roethlisberger. Nobody is, right? And so I think he's kind of facing a dilemma right now. So, you know, it, it's a quarterback um, league, and I think until they get the right quarterback – you're going you're gonna to make do with what you got, and he's making do with what he's got. So y- you can only do so much. You can only expect so much from somebody who's giving you limited play, and Kenny Pickett is just – I mean, their defense is fantastic, but their their offense is just not – you know, their defense was winning games for them this season, not the offense. So I, I think it's a very tricky situation. You can only put the blame so far. Um and you know when you when you when you go in a draft you you're playing the lottery and I, I don't think that they they won so I think it's going to be very season to see how far of a leash Pickett has and then how quickly if Mason stays with the Steelers how how soon until he comes back into the fray because Mitch is going to be gone so it's it's uh it's interesting. You guys may have stumbled into something with Mason Rudolph. I that, that was surprising. I watched him play a lot at Oklahoma State as a Texas Longhorns fan and somebody who watches a ton of Big 12 football. I thought he might have it at the NFL level. That wasn't the case a few years ago, but he was showing something a little bit different at the end of the season. If you were only to be able to go forward with one of those two quarterbacks next season, Rudolph or Pickett, who would you choose right now? I would go with Rudolph, to be completely okay. honest, to know that he's been sitting there on the bench stewing, oh, just building up tanker fuel when you get that opportunity to go in there. Uh, he's not goofing off. He's not on the iPad. He's literally mentally pretending to be in the game. Uh, he he capitulated to that. He admitted that. I mean, that's a vulnerable thing to say, to be like, I ate crow for all these years sitting on the bench. Ben wasn't as welcoming. Um, he had all the reason to... To be like this, like I'm, I'm checking out. I'm just gonna go sit in the back. I'll, I'll text my wife. You know why? Why he didn't do that? He sat there on the bench and mentally pretended he was the quarterback for every play. 
and 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 running through the game. He was so committed to the game. I think that does something where it's like this guy's prepared. He's been preparing. He's been waiting for this moment. And look, you get to the playoffs, and that's your fourth game. I mean, I think he did a very, very noble job. I, I think the receivers dropped quite a few passes they could have caught, or a few mistakes made, but I thought he did a good job. I'd ride the hot hand and then let Pickett earn again, you know? Yeah, that was a maddening team to watch on offense this year because George Pickens would flash these incredible plays, but then he would have these moments where it seems like he's not in the game. The running back situation was weird. Like Jalen Warren felt like he needed to get more carries than Najee Harris, but there was still that pretty yeah. even split with Najee starting games as well. Look, I'm, I'm rooting for you guys. I'm not a Cowboys fan, even though I'm in Cowboys country. I, I like the Steelers right. as an organization, and there are some likable guys on that team as well. And obviously, you still got it going on defensively, especially when Watt is out there and healthy. It's just a matter of finding out, figuring out that right combination on offense. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I think, again, you how the team itself reacted. It's just like there was it was almost like an adrenaline boost. All of a sudden, Harrison, you know, Warren just kind of light up and their running game all of a sudden takes off. I I, I don't know that they, I don't know. There were, there was, a, there was definitely like a, a cancer in that room. It seems like uh, Najee kept alluding to it. You know, if you read the tea leaves correctly, I mean, he wasn't too, too obvious or pointing fingers, but he was like, there's something, something off in this locker room. And the Steelers were always, you know, a, a pretty first-class organization, not letting things leak out of the locker room and keeping things airtight. But I think, um, I think Antonio Brown was the first to kind of like blow the doors off of that. And ever since that incident between him and Roethlisberger, more of an open case scenario where guys will allude to what what's happening. Whereas like you never heard that before. So I think there is something in the culture that's permeated since AB into the Steelers locker room. But I, I, I don't know. I also love the fact that the Steelers have only had three head coaches. I mean, throughout the course of their time and, if this guy's got a winning record, I get it. It's like, but he's not winning the big games. But it's like, it's deeper than that. You got to go deeper than that. It's not just that. So, I don't know. I like Tomlin. I think he's done a great job. I think he. Uh, it's also got to be taxing for him being with the same organization. Like, sometimes a coach does need a new change of environment. But but I think Pittsburgh loves him. I think he loves Pittsburgh. I think he loves being there. And I think he's, he's still – I think – all this talk that we're talking about, I think he knows it too. You don't think that this guy, this guy's competitive. He wants another ring. He doesn't want the stigma of like, oh, you know, I took over Coward's team. It's like he wants he wants to prove it on his own too, 100%. And I think if he wants to prove it, he's going to do it in Pittsburgh. Hey, great stuff, man. Really appreciate it. If you're up for it uh, before those uh, comedy mothership shows in May, I'd love to have you on again to get more into the, the Cal Poly basketball story that you're going to be retelling and a couple of other things too as well. Yeah, so yeah, we're casting it right now. So hopefully, who knows? Maybe by then I'll I'll have I'll, I'll be in pre-production. So who knows? But um, but yeah, it's it, it's pretty cool. I don't know if you know Caltech's basketball program, but they went oh for thirty years basically. So for thirty years they didn't win a game. Holy coach shit. comes in realizes he's coaching all these nerds, and uh, again, it's a true story. And he's like, he gets there, he's like, these guys suck. <laughs> like so, the whole film's not like. We're winning the championship and turning it around. It's like, no, the whole film's, can you just win one game? Like, just for the love of God, just win once. So that's the whole film. So so that's it. So we're um, we're gearing up towards that. So fingers crossed we get to bang it up pretty soon. 
He is comedian Steve Byrne. Don't let the soft exterior fool you. He takes a flamethrower <laughs> to the place when he's on stage. And uh, we are lucky here in Austin because he's going to be here in town at Creek in the Cave tomorrow and Saturday. That's February 9th and 10th. Shows at 7 and 9 o'clock. Go to creekandcave.com to snag tickets. Find out more info. Also check Steve out on Instagram at Steve Byrne Live and you go to his YouTube page as well. You can watch his latest specials, which are crowd work specials, the first 10 minutes of his most recent special, which is a, a fascinating, uniquely uh, unique concept where he's taking the late night talk show model and incorporating that into a stand-up special and a whole lot more as well. You can also watch uh, the Amazing Jonathan documentary there for free. Steve, real pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Safe travels to and from Austin this weekend. No, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure getting to speak with you. I'm sorry. These questions, I go, I go a little long-winded sometimes, but if you ask, it's like, well, I might as well answer correctly. So that's appreciate why, it, man. Thanks that, for having me. That's why I ask the questions. I appreciate the great answers, man. <laughs> that's right. All right. Well, hopefully we'll see you this weekend. Saturday will be the hungover show because I'm sure I'll run into my good friend Tone Bell up there and, uh, Tie went on. Jesus. Pray for my liver. All right. Another show is in the books. Thank you again to Steve Byrne for joining me for the entire hour. A quick programming note before I bid you adieu for the evening. Join me tomorrow, I think right at 6 o'clock. Start of the show, I am going over the best football-related bets for the Super Bowl with my buddy Sam Paniotovich. Lead sports handicapper at Nesson up in Boston. You know the nickname, Sammy P. He is one of the best in the business. Going to join me tomorrow for that very first segment to talk about everything Super Bowl gambling related. You do not want to miss that. And coming up next week, I'm excited for a couple of different conversations. One with musician Kenny Wayne Shepard, and then also comedian Brian Callen, who's going to be in town next week with his podcast, Fighter and the Kid. They're doing a live taping at Vulcan Gas Company next week. I believe that's on Thursday or Friday, but stay tuned for that one as well. Thank you to everybody for tuning in. Do appreciate it. Have yourselves a great rest of the night, and hook them. On 1027 ESPN.